0: Never be the one who says I have no idea. Unlock the full picture and get unlimited access to unique data and respected business journalism that advances your understanding and business. Subscribe today at housingwire.com/membership. Welcome everyone. My guest today is managing editor James Kleiman to talk about the latest in the buyer broker commission lawsuits, including what the RE/MAX settlement could mean for agents. James, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Sarah.
0: Always great to have you on. And today we're going to cover some of the more litigious things going on in our industry, which, you know, there are always a lot. I think really to tie a bow on the on the broker commission lawsuits, let's talk about REMAX and um, what, ha- what happened this week.
1: Yeah, massive. Absolutely massive. So I think most of you probably remember that Anywhere Real Estate, formerly known as Realogy, Big brokerage conglomerate headquartered in, uh, in my home state of New Jersey. They settled the, uh, the two, two of the three major, uh, real estate kind of buyer broker side commission cases and, you know, damages for the three of the, the current cases up there for the industry could be worth of $45 billion. Uh, so, you know, very, very significant, very scary if you're in the industry. And the first domino to fall was anywhere. And and it really came down, I think, mostly to the fact that Anywhere had already decided they've already spoken out publicly against what's called the the NAR participation rule, which effectively, you know, I'm really uh, dumbing it down here. It's a little bit more complex than this, but what basically says if you want to be, uh, you know, getting your listings on the MLS then you need to be offering buyer broker comp, right? So anywhere decides, you know what, we're, we're just going to settle this. We are going to make changes, undisclosed changes to kind of how we, we structure the commissions between agents, you know, and, and we're going to settle for about $85 million. And they've got like $3 billion in debt and, the attorneys for the plaintiffs in two of the class action lawsuits basically said, this is the most amount of money we could have possibly extracted from a real estate company that is, I think by most measures, struggling as a publicly traded entity. And a week later, we hear that Remax uh, is also prepared to settle the case. And we see in court records a, a day later that it is in fact the case, and they settled for about fifty-five million dollars. Similarly, although we know that they're going to be making significant changes to the way they have uh, structured commissions, whether they need to put uh, you know any amount on the buyer broker side when there is a transaction, we don't know exactly what that looks like. We don't know if it means that their agents are no longer going to be adhering to various rules of the NAR. Um, but we do know that they're going to be paying quite a bit of money, 55 million for a company that is much smaller than anywhere. And they're going to be making big changes. And you have to think if you're following uh, the arguments that the plaintiffs have put forward, they're going to be asking for significant changes to the way really MLSs, is, uh, brokerages, and they are NAR all function. And so there are a couple other brokerages that are named to these suits that have not publicly stated whether there is a settlement agreement, but I think there's a good probability that at least one of the two remaining companies does decide. You know what? Our competitors got out of this for under hundred million dollars, and even in the even if they believe they have a great case and uh, that they'd prevail when it does go to trial in one case. in in a month. Um, Do we want to be staring down like a billion dollars in potential liability? Like we don't have that kind of money. None of these companies have that kind of money. And you see all the time in, in, you know, corporate America, companies settle cases, even if they don't believe that they're at fault. I mean, whether they do and whether they say they do is another matter altogether, right? Uh, But it's just the kind of the cost of doing business and if you want to stay and, and maintain, you know, some of the existing arrangements and services that you have, but are okay compromising on maybe ditching a couple others to which we can only speculate, for example, the NAR code of ethics, you know, we've heard that maybe that's one of those rules that is at stake here. Uh, another that your members, your agents have to be a member of the NAR uh, to post listings and, and to provide a comp for the buyer broker. Again, we don't know specifically what's in these agreements, but I mean, that could be at stake and that could be absolutely massive in terms of how the industry, you know, basically gets listings up and, and how they transact between one another.
0: So this is my question. You know, if you're an agent on the ground, what do you, when you see these things, you're like, what does that mean to me? How, you know, what's the time frame here? They've made these undisclosed changes. Is there, you know, do we know what that looks like? Is that by the end of the year? And then like, Bottom line, what does that mean for me? Me, if I was a real estate agent.
1: So let's let's start by acknowledging there are going to be major changes. Uh, you have a lawsuit as massive as the three that we have right now, uh, and, and just the specter of the industry potentially losing billions in damages. You know, and and again, these are only the named parties. So we're not talking about the EXPs and all the flat fee brokerages and compass, none of whom were named to any of these suits, but, you know, could very well be named in the next one. So it, it doesn't mean that if the plaintiffs have extracted major settlement agreements from, you know, the parties that have already been named that they're done. Um, they're, they're going for the top brokerages from the era with which the claims arise, which is really about a decade ago. Uh, and, so that, that's the first thing I think is important to note here, that the industry as a whole faces a lot more liability than is even, uh, you know, specific to these lawsuits. The second part of it is, I think because you already have Anywhere and you already have REMAX, which collectively have a couple hundred thousand agents, you know, I mean, and these are professional agents. These aren't my Aunt Betty, who does a deal every year or, you know, every year and a half and uh, hangs their license somewhere and pays like a limited desk fee, just in the off chance that maybe, you know, a friend's nephew needs a real estate agent. Uh, These are agents who do this every day, right? These are professionals. If you do have, you know, agreements already in place between the plaintiffs and two big brokerages saying, again, as a hypothetical, um, you no longer need to be a member of the NAR to put listings up on the MLS, but you do have to, you know, have a, a different number for the buyer broker maybe it doesn't have to be anything you know you're going to change probably some element of how you do business I think it's too soon to say what it looks like right now because we just don't know what the agreement is you know if, if it is sort of the examples the hypothetical examples that I cite um, it could mean a lot of things it, it could mean that you as a real estate agent who does a tremendous amount of listings right like let's say you get five listings a month. In almost every case prior, you were probably negotiating with a buy side agent and and just entirely going through them in some of these scenarios, you may not be negotiating with a buy side agent. You may be quasi and I hesitate to use um you know that this sort of verbiage, but the buyer may not have a buy side agent in that next deal and might approach you and say, "Hey, like <laughs> you know." As the sell side agent, it's your show and you can get instead of your 3%, you can get 4% uh, and that's better for you. Uh, but it's probably going to make things a lot more complicated if you're negotiating directly with a buyer who doesn't have representation. And, you know, it's it's. Um, I think the industry fears this idea that you have people representing themselves in the biggest transaction of them. Of their lives and don't really know what they're doing. You know, like I do this every day as, as a, a reporter, as an editor. And I got an agent on the buy side when I bought my house, partly because, you know, I, I figured like, I'm not really paying for it. I mean, I am right in the sense that you're paying for the house and you're basically paying for the seller to find someone to sell the house to, you know, via kind of a third party. Uh, but I don't know that I would be comfortable as someone who's much more versed, much much better versed in this than the average consumer if I would want to do this entirely on my own. I mean maybe I would. maybe I would just hire a real estate attorney who goes through the finer points of a contract. Um, but that's a major question, right? that that still is yet to be uh, answered, and we don't really know what that's going to look like. We don't We do know that it's going to very much tip um, tip in the favor favor of sell side agents. And because they hold all the cards, you know, we we know that there are going to be um, some percentage of buyers who say, I'm going to have to also pay for my own agent in addition to the down payment, in addition to potentially elevated mortgage rates. And, you know, people forget about the closing costs, which are thousands more and and can be much more depending on where you are and like HOAs. And, you know, there are all kinds of crazy fees that sometimes pop up when you go, wait a second, like, I thought I was buying a $400,000 house. Like, sure looks like I'm buying a $480,000 house. Like, what is this? Are they going to want to take on also negotiating the comp of their buy side agent and, you know, figuring out how to do this when it's already a, a really a difficult time for affordability. Some will, some won't. Um, but it's it's a major question. And in terms of the the larger time timeline, um, I think no matter what happens here, let's say the plaintiffs lose, they're going to be finding other plaintiffs and other brokerages on similar claims because these lawyers are they're running a business like this is a cottage industry within law. Even you know they're finding people who have a legal grievance. And the courts have already said, we believe that there is certainly enough here to pursue a major class action case. And we're only talking about a couple jurisdictions and a couple MLSs. You know, like we're not talking about even California. We're not talking about Florida or Texas or, you know, the biggest states in the country. We're talking about like the Midwest. Uh, And, you know, these are cases emanating out of Illinois and Missouri, right? So there, there are way more opportunities for class action lawyers to find a couple clients who say, oh, you know what? Yeah, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have subsidized the, uh, the buyer and, and, uh, you know, his or her services on the other side, let's say the NAR and the brokerages lose. Do you think there is even like a snowball's chance in, um, can I say hell, <laughs> uh, that they're going to say, Oh yeah. Like, okay, you got us like good game guys. We're just going to pony up, you know, the billions of dollars, that we're potentially on the hook for. Like the NAR is going to fight this tooth and nail. They're going to exhaust every legal avenue they have. Their their lobbying arm is going to be, you know, operating like we've never seen before because this represents an existential threat to their structure, to the way they enforce the rules that create members. They are going to do everything in their power to prevent these kinds of actions from from actually taking place. Most people I've spoken to in the industry who cover this sort of thing think we probably won't see a final resolution to these issues regardless of what it ends up being uh, for about five years. So let's say the Sitzer-Burnett case goes to trial in October. It's a pretty quick trial. They're done in April. We're gonna be looking at like probably 2028, 2029 before it winds through appeals and, you know, who knows where it goes, maybe the Supreme Court. This is just going to kind of, you know, go on like this for a while. If you're an agent, I mean, you probably want to prepare for the possibility that there are going to be changes, right? Like maybe this is a time to start thinking about, is there a way to do like dual representation in, in a way like that's tricky, right? I, how you know, Solomon and the baby, right. I, I don't know how you do it. Um, but it's, it's certainly something that, you know, we do see from time to time agents are involved in like almost 90% of transactions, but there are still a lot of transactions that don't have agents, you know, representing both sides of the deal. So it does happen, you know, especially with home builders, right. You know, they, they have their own in-house staff and if you're a buyer, um, very often you don't have an agent because, well, the home builder is not going to pay for them. So, you know, that's, it, it could just be a lot more like that.
0: It's so interesting because at the heart of this, right, supposedly is the consumer and making sure that the people who are buying the house are not getting, you know, are getting a fair deal. But there's so many intricacies here that is where it is not clear that this is in the end or in the meantime going to be better for the consumer, Right. It's it's just a pretty difficult thing, complicated thing to say. Oh, this one issue, you know, if it has all the all of these effects, it's like, I mean, this could be worse for the consumer. Like, are th- is it going to be harder to find things um, to buy? Is it, you know, are they going to get worse representation? Are they going to, to your point, they're going to have to hire, you know, and then that's another uh, layer if they have to hire a lawyer. Plus, a lawyer is not going to drive them around and. Um, no, maybe a, a lawyer may not know anything about the you know the neighborhood or the property. It's just it, there's a reason we have real estate agents. So figuring out how to pay them is is a good endeavor. But in the meantime, it seems like it could be just chaos.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's very easy to make the argument that the system that uh, exists and has been in existence for more than a century uh, makes sense because really, when when you kind of break it down to its most finite part, what you as the seller are paying for this is what a lot of the agents who think this is the best system argue is you are paying for your agent to find a third party rep right another buyer agent that can negotiate this deal because that gives your client the best chance of finding professionally well-sourced credible ethical you know partners on a deal And I think that's a fairly compelling argument. You know, with this one, you're basically saying, hey, maybe you have representation, maybe you don't. Maybe the deal goes smoothly, maybe it doesn't. Uh, And you're you're throwing a lot of other, I I guess, variables into the mix here. Um, You could also argue that um, sellers have been, you know, basically propping up the industry's interests and not necessarily the consumer's interest because you're effectively saying with this participation role, you're necessitating there being two agents who are getting a cut of the sale. And maybe that's not necessary in every case, right? Like maybe, maybe the buyer doesn't need that kind of representation because they are a savvy investor or buyer or, you know, and, and look like A lot of savvy buyers can negotiate on their own and already do this. Like they already, you know, what we're talking about is not like a nuclear winter scenario um, across the board, but for the average consumer, I think they'd probably be best served with the real estate agent. And the question is, like, can the economics work in, in a way in which they do figure out how to compensate them without having to also spend, you know, $10,000 extra or whatever it ends up being, maybe that can get rolled into the cost of the mortgage, right? But that's going to need some sort of federal reckoning, of course. And, and, you know, as we know, the FHFA and other entities don't exactly move at a, you know, warp speed when handling kind of, you know, very, very thorny questions like that. Um, Or maybe it becomes like there are boutique, very niche representation services that handle kind of the major sticking points of you know what a buyer rep should do. I mean, just on on the sell side, if you don't want a sell side agent to be doing the full marketing and you know outreach and getting professional photos and a floor plan and all that, you can. There's a guy in Florida who is one of the top agents in America, and all he literally does is takes your listing and puts it on the MLS, and you pay him like four hundred bucks. And you can write the description, you can take your own photos, you you take the calls from the buy-side agents or maybe an investor, right? Maybe there's no real estate agent whatsoever at any stage, you know, that actually is handling uh, the element of the sale beyond access to the MLS. That is not a far-fetched scenario. Maybe everybody's saving 40, 50, 60 grand. Maybe you know, the sale price can be lower and uh, and the seller still gets. More in the end, because they're not paying for the services that they don't feel they need, we're still looking at a marketplace probably for the next couple of years where there is much more demand than there is supply so again like th- these are so complicated it it's so much about the individual situation you know uh and you know you can you can come up with all kinds of arguments, but uh at the end of the day, I don't think we're gonna really see a whole lot of changes outside of what individual brokerages decide their agents can and cannot or can and and don't have to do, I should say, uh, you know, with with kind of this lawsuit, these lawsuits hanging over their heads.
0: You know, we um, did a data digest last week, I believe, looking at the um, NAR's lobbying efforts over the years and kind of like what they bring to the table and you know one of the things that was so striking there is what a giant organization it is and how much lobbying power they have so it's interesting to see them in the middle of this when you would think that you know um they would they would not land here what what are your thoughts on that
1: Yeah they they are easily the biggest organization in the country by both membership they have about 1.6 million members and all of those members basically kick up to the brokers who then have to pay all the dues. And, you know, and there, there's all kinds of required trainings and and all kinds of stuff that, that goes into it. And, and really as a member, I would argue that the most valuable thing that you get from this organization is just the lobbying might. And they do pay quite a pretty penny for that lobbying might. I mean, they're paying millions every year. They are in the ears of senators. They are, working with PACs and super PACs. They are looking at issues that are relevant to the housing industry as a whole. Um, they look at commercial, they are, I think in a lot of cases doing really important work to provide a voice for a lot of very productive professionals. You know, a lot of real estate agents make good money and are real economic drivers for their communities. Um, but they're also lobbying for a lot of kind of, there are some cases in which they are lobbying for issues that don't appear to have any specific relevance to how an agent uh, or an appraiser or a commercial broker uh, should be doing business. They're they're getting into culture war stuff, which alienates a lot of people in, in certain areas. They have such a you know, it's it's also I think worth keeping in mind that it's such a big organization. If you had one point six million of anything, you're gonna have a lot of disputes, you're gonna have a lot of weird bureaucracy that you know, there's a lot of real politic that goes into the NAR. They have these like sprawling executive committees that have like seventy-five people, or they, they have so many little fiefdoms within them that are are really just because somebody showed up one day and decided, like, okay, this is mine. And nobody took it from them because it's like, who cares? Like, you know, it's a membership. It's a basically a voluntary position, but some climb the ladder and they stay with the organization for many years. They can get paid a pretty solid amount of money for becoming part of the apparatus. Uh, and you know, there, there's a lot of, a lot of good that is done at the organization but you also have a lot of problems that are never really solved because it's hard to solve problems at any organization that has 1.6 million members. And this is not to let them off the hook. A lot of the allegations related to sexual harassment and, and sort of a culture of fear are unacceptable for any organization of any size. Um, but it's easy to see how problems start to emerge and how people start to protect themselves and others and, and where they got uh, just because it's it's really hard to squash those bugs.
0: It is. And, you know, I feel like when you think about all of the attention that um, is, has rightly been paid um, to fair housing and to making sure that, you know, um, if you think about bias in the system or redlining or all these things, uh, taking professional real estate agents out of the equation seems like a big risk that could lead to a lot of really terrible unintended consequences when we're talking about something that's already has a history of, of being very difficult um, and being unfair. And so it's like, okay, taking more, you know, licensed people out of the equation or, or, you know, I mean, the fact that one of the things about being a member of NARS, is like you have all this continuing education you have to do, which I would argue might be a really good thing, right? I mean, things change all the time. And so on the mortgage side, we see how regulated it is. On the real estate side, it's a little bit different. They do have a lot of rules, but like one, you know, this, this is a construct that helps, you know, run the whole machine. So again, going to be very interesting to see how this shakes out.
1: Yeah. And I think related to that point, Sarah, I mean, the the NAR has been around for a very long time and they were not exactly progressive. They were not, uh, at the forefront of a lot of very important movements in, in the 1960s. We, we still have issues that come up often with fair housing with a professional organization like the NAR that really requires its members to take, as you said, continuing education. Some may remember the bombshell series that came out from Newsweek, uh, couple of years ago out on long island you know i mean huge problems with steering you know and this is with the nar this is with professional agents who have gone through the trainings and you know that's not to say it's the responsibility of the nar i think by and large we have less fair housing problems because there is an emphasis on making sure that people do this and also for what it's worth like if you're running a brokerage, like you don't want to get sued for fair housing, it's it's not just an expensive problem to deal with. It's a rep. It's a big reputational risk. No one wants to be known as the brokerage that actively discriminates against Hispanics or, or black people or any other protected class. Um, but it does happen. This is America. We have social problems at at every turn that that we've never fully reckoned with. And, you know, it's not like the NAR is responsible for uh, solving these problems independently. Uh, I agree that I I think the NAR does provide a net benefit to the consumer in requiring, uh, you know, people to take continuing education. Also, the MLSs that could potentially be at threat here with these lawsuits they do a great job of policing, uh, accuracy in listings and a lot of fair housing issues never come to light because people monitor the other agents and they make sure that someone isn't saying like no section eight allowed, for example, or, you know, other, or just misstatements, you know, complete false, falsehoods, uh, in, in listings and whatnot. So, yeah. I mean, definitely important to have. I still think we could do a lot better. And I think the NAR could do a lot better in in really coming down on, on agents and and others who are not uh, putting their best foot forward.
0: Well, and, you know, as you said, I mean, the agent, uh, the trade org itself has had some really significant problems uh, from its start, actually, and, and then continuing into now. So it's always that balance of like, what you have isn't, you know, perfect and maybe really far from perfect and it's like, okay, but what are you gonna replace it with? I'm always like, let's not burn something down until we know what it is.
1: You could come up with a lot of different ideas for a new structure to, you know, be the phoenix of the NAR, but again, any organization that has 1.6 million members is going to have a lot of just logistical problems. We have a 50-something person organization and and it is and we are both managers. And it is very difficult to manage people, right? People are complicated. Things go wrong. They get upset about one thing, or you don't know that they're upset about another. And it's it's not it's not easy. If if it were, you know, we we would see much better companies, much better systems, we'd have a better society. You know, this is hard work. It is not to excuse the NAR in any uh, respect for some of its very significant shortcomings, but any organization that were to replace it would have a lot of problems. I do think that there is a growing um, movement toward seeing some leadership changes at the organization. Um, you know, they've they've had <laughs> they've had a lot of people who I, I think on their watch have um, you know seen public deterioration of. Trust in the realtor brand. And I mean, with one exception, they're all still there, even after everything that has happened the New York Times expose. The fact that these lawsuits are even in play right now is, you know, one could argue a, a major misstep from the organization. We haven't even talked about the fact that there are a lot of realtors who feel, I think, rightly, that the NAR sold their data to the Zillow's and realtor.com's and made some very, very, very grievous errors in, in the way that they control their own data. And now how many agents are paying Zillow a few grand a month for their own data, right? Like it's, it's almost like, like an episode of black mirror in like a real estate form. Um, You know, so again, I, I think the NAR. Has um has has really a lot to answer for to its members and and it can do better and it should do better and you know we'll see if they succumb to the pressure but who knows
0: it's part of why in my opinion housing War exists right part of our job is to shine the light here and and you know make sure people have all the information. Um, so that they can help the system that they're a part of be better or burn it down or whatever they're going to do. But but that's our part. And, you know, to that, um, James, thank you so much for the continued coverage of this very important issue that ex- affects 1.6 million people in our country and so much of our audience um, and affects, you know, any consumer is going to buy and sell a house. So we'll look forward to more news coming out and, and keep an eye out.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me, Sarah.
0: Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insights.